And you may find yourself singing in a Yokohama blues club. And you may find yourself in another part of the world. And you may find yourself cowering on the sidelines while a gangster uses your friend for target practice. And you may ask yourself, well, how did I get here? Letting the days go by. (laughs) The answer, of course, is we're not in Hollywood anymore. Once again, we have jumped abroad. Just as when we checked in on Jean-Luc Godard and Seijun Suzuki in the 1960s, our detective archetype is about to take on some new dimensions. Untethered from the largely linear progression from classic noir to the likes of The Long Goodbye in Chinatown, the international entries in this season are a veritable kaleidoscope of influences, and you'll be hard-pressed to find much in common ground between tonight's titles. And how wonderful is that? What a treat it is that we can see a Japanese lounge singer detective drawing on the influences of blues and gangster films, or an Indian sleuth distilled from Hammett, Christie, and Conan Doyle, while still creating a uniquely Bengali hero. The detective is a global archetype, infinitely adaptable, increasingly distilled from stacking influences with through lines both apparent and obtuse. This is where cinematic alchemy creates something special, and maybe that's why noir in particular feels so hard to pin down. Like the sprawling cities it prefers to inhabit, the genre yawns in all directions, impossible to capture in a bottle. One thing, however, is for certain. No matter if we're in Yokohama or La La Land, in the canyons of New York, or along the banks of the Ganges, as long as we're under the same sun, there will always be shadows. Yeah, well, like a man told me once, step out your door in the morning, you're already in trouble. Just a matter of whether you mixed up at the top of that trouble or not, that's all. So you're a private detective. I didn't know they existed except in books, or else they were greasy little men snooping around hotel corridors. Yeah, well, you know, that's just like, uh, your opinion, man. Step aside like a nice fella and let us do our job. What's in it for me? Nobody got hurt. Oh, God, I'm saying I think they died quickly, though, so I don't think that they got hurt. It's okay with me. Hello, and welcome to Celluloid Dirt, where two friends get together to watch new and familiar noir films, then talk about them. I'm one of those friends, Fred Pelzer, joined by my friend, Dustin Johnson. And tonight we're shaking things up once again with another international episode, including a return trip to Japan for Yokohama BJ Blues. But we'll be starting the evening in India with a late era offering from the renowned Satyajit Ray, the Elephant God. Released in 1979 and directed by Satyajit Ray, The Elephant God stars Somitra Chatterjee as Filuda, Siddhartha Chatterjee, Santosh Dutta, and Utpal Dutt uh, round out the cast. Uh, we are on holiday in the holy city of Varanasi. Uh, Faluda and his companions Jatayu and Tapesh get wrapped up in a case involving the theft of a precious Ganesh statue from the estate of the Gosal family. A gangster, 
Manganlal is the primary suspect, and when Faluda pays a visit, Manganlal has them held at gunpoint while his servant throws knives at Jatayu, all as a show to scare them off. Now, the various strands begin to get tied up. There's a local holy man uh, and saint who proves to be on Manganlal's payroll, and we reveal that uh, Ruku, the child on the Gosal compound, helps his grandfather concoct a plan to hide the idol, only for it to ultimately be a replica itself. And Faluda exacts his revenge on Manganlal as the gangster is brought to justice in an ambush along the Ganges. So, uh, this, uh, Fred, I, 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 if I'm recalling correctly, as for our personal relationship with this movie, um, you have not watched any Satyajit Ray until we started this project. Yes. And so the two titles of Satyajit that I've watched are The Elephant God and also The Zoo, which was about 13 years earlier, I think, 66, uh, which is another one of his detective adaptations uh, that we were considering as a possible pairing with uh, The Elephant uh, God. And then we ended up not going that direction. Uh, so, yeah, I, my my introduction to Satyajit Ray has been through his classic detective movies and not through like... <laughs> The Apu trilogy. Um, it is definitely uh, you. Are, you are one of the few people I'm sure to approach it. One of the few people in the Western world, at least, to approach his filmography that way. Uh, but why not? Uh, I I um, am familiar with with Ray and have been for a while because of the Apu trilogy, like like most people. Uh, uh, and and that is certainly a good way to start for him. Uh, it is, um, it's a very different pace of movie and a very, uh, a very different type of movie in general than what we're looking at here. But I also, I kind of love that, that we have someone who is, is considered a world-class auteur who also is a, a dork for detective fiction and decided, um, decided that he would write, um, he would write his own. And that's where Faluda was born in the 1960s. Uh, Ray, Satyajit Ray, of course, he um, he's he's known primarily for, for the Apu trilogy and and got his start in the 1950s. He actually has a lot of of background uh, in um, in more Western film. He worked with Jean Renoir on The River when he was filming that in India, uh, which is a wonderful film. Uh, if, for those who have not seen it, uh, it's on Criterion. I highly recommend it. Um, and, and when he was, uh, he moved to London after that and spent some time working there. Uh, and then when he, um, when he had just finished Pathar Panchali, the, the first in the Apu trilogy, he actually met with John Houston, who was scouting for, I think, uh, the man who would be king in mm. India at the time. Um, so he's certainly a director who's got, who's very familiar with classic, Hollywood and cinema, even though he is uh, absolutely doing his own thing in um, in confines of India. And while we're at that, um, we I being someone that watches uh, a decent number of Indian films, it's been one of my my uh, one of my pet projects over the last year or two uh, to to really catch myself up on that. Uh, Satyajit Ray is not is not what we associate with Bollywood. He is, he is a Bengali director. Um, these, his films are, are nothing like what you think of when you think of a, of what a Bollywood film would be. They're, they're something separate entirely. 
For sure. I've seen a smattering of, I mean, really just the slightest possible number of, of films from India, but as you said, it, it, you know, Indian film encompasses, I mean, just as the country itself encompasses a wide variety of places and peoples and geography. So too, just encompass a lot of different uh, film industries. And so there are absolutely filmmakers who are continuing in the Ray tradition of very kind of grounded, intimate dramas and, uh, and then at the same time, you have these amazing, bold movies, the Bollywood movies that you that you think of that are filled with spectacle and dance. And um, and then also, you know, even looking at like RRR, which is not Bollywood, but takes some of those influences, but is, uh, I believe it's Tamaliwood, right? Is with, or, or Tollywood? What's the... Tollywood, yeah. Tollywood. Um, um, so, you know, there, like I said, it's, there's, there's a lot of different things that you can find within Indian cinema. I mean, even just a variety of, you know, languages that are spoken within the the ranks of Indian cinema. So there's a lot you could, you could, it could be a whole other podcast that was just, it would be several podcasts just to, yes. to really start digging into the Indian cinema. So uh, no. So yeah, I, I'm very, very lightly familiar with it. And uh, like I said, also with Ray, I, I've only watched this in the zoo. I'll eventually yeah. watch the Apu trilogy. But... Just like, just like Jean-Luc Godard. Yeah, just you're, like my Jean-Luc Godard intro. I'm just a, like, you're, you're you know. finding a great way. <laughs> so in the, in the 1960s, Satyajit Ray begins writing detective fiction and, and his literary creation is Faluda, this, um, this detective who is certainly cut uh, from the the Sherlock Holmes cloth. He's definitely branded as an intellectual, um, as as someone who's going to use deductive reasoning to to solve his crimes. This is not this is not a Mike Hammer. Um, he is no. not about <laughs> as far removed from that that kind of detective sketch as you can get. And Ray begins writing these detective stories in the '60s, and he continues right on up through his death in 1992. So there's uh, it's really a a string of um, of these that are released. Um, the Elephant God is the second film adaptation of these stories. It comes after The Golden Fortress. Uh, chronologically, though, The Elephant God, the story it's based on, is the 11th Faluda story, and it came out in 1975. So that's when the original story here is. Uh, Which makes sense. It, it feels, you know, they, they're, the central trios very clearly have like an established relationship and they, I mean, it feels like, a mid-season episode of a long-running TV show. Totally, totally, yeah. Um, no, there's a there's a comfortable dynamic with with everyone here. Uh, that... I mean, it could be a murder she wrote. In <laughs> certain respects, no, no. I think you're. I think that's that's not totally off. This is uh, Ray is leaning into the the install the pleasure of installments with these mm-hmm. um, with these kind of detective stories and uh, and how exciting it is to you know get to get to follow along a detective like Faluda, um, how to, how to hop around the country because he's very much traveling and in, in these uh, without too much knowledge of, of, of the um, works, which some are short, some are longer. Uh, but he does, he does travel around India and tends to start up each of these in different locales. Hmm. Um, and in the case of, Elephant God. This is set in Varanasi, which uh, uh, formerly was Benares, and and in ancient times was was called Kashi. 
and it is uh, one of the world's oldest continuously inhabited cities. Uh, and and I think that is uh, that's something that when I watched it the first time, I I didn't necessarily soak in quite that that level of history. But but re um, watching it again, I, uh, I I could definitely see just I mean uh, there there's architecture. Oh, the architecture here it is yeah uh, and, and the the film uses it very well um i i i think that that it's just it's something so unlike what we've gotten to look at because we've been used to being trapped in a modern cityscape but this is no different this is more on uh, what it reminds me of uh, what film it reminds me of visually in that regard is pepe lamoco which has all mm. of the noir trappings, but he's in the Casbah, and sure. and uh, and so having having something that feels so so uh, 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 far from what from what the 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 L.A. labyrinth is in our mind, the 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 detective playground that we're used to, um, it still can be made to work as far as creating that that. Space constricting space that the detective has to move through yeah no i totally agree it was uh, one of my favorite things about it about this movie was was the way that it was using the architecture of the city i felt like also to what you're speaking about in terms of being such an old and long inhabited city you get some of that in the towards the opening when they're riding into the city and going to the hotel and uh that's use um you know, marking his respect to the temples. Um, the versions that I was watching, the subtitles were, I'm colorblind, and the subtitles were like a color oh. that kind of blended in a little oh. bit with the, <laughs> sometimes. So I didn't always have the easiest time reading the, the subtitles on this. Did you watch it on HBO Max? I think that's Is it HBO Max? Yeah. Damn it. <laughs> that's fine. <laughs> you, you, it's not your responsibility. So, uh, <laughs> but yeah, so I, I couldn't always get all of, the translated dialogue but it seemed like you know he's he's marking his respect to many of the um the places they're going past and so i think that that influences there and uh but no you're right that it just sort of is inhabiting this much older city is uh it really gives it some some specific flavor and texture and also the many scenes at the banks of the ganges where the boat is pulling up and this uh uh what do you call them uh the the holy man has has established himself also makes just for a very like there's a reason we keep coming back to that spot because it is beautiful and interesting and and great to look at yeah and um you know we're gonna um we're gonna be checking in on another film tonight that that is is set in a port city uh but i think um just being on that um being on that waterway um being connected to the rest of the world by water um is is very much um it's something that you're reminded of often here i mean a different way that that yokohama bj blues is going to do it but i i i think that that's a an interesting thread to kind of pull it together I, well, we we can talk about that more with our our next film because i think it's even more more pronounced there um, while while we're talking about the setting, we're looking for what um, what anchors us still in ways to classic noir to noir that we've been discussing, um, and what ways it pulls us apart. Um, and and I and I do think that how the 
throughout this movie, the cinematography really does kind of keep pulling me back in that direction. And especially in the back half of the, after, after an opening that is very much, very much there, um, and it eases up a little bit as we kind of set the scene and our characters settle in. But, but by the time we're in the, the second half of the movie, uh, you know, we're getting um, pursuits down corridors and, a and an alleyway stabbing and, um, and things that are, are, and constantly framing characters in interesting ways um, throughout the architecture. Um, that that's something that really kept even even at points where where you're watching and you're and you're trying to uh, you're you're watching this this movie that is not necessarily setting out to be a noir, but you're looking for where the influences come from in it, and that's what really held me to it throughout. Yeah, I mean, again, as I mentioned earlier, the section, the pursuit by foot after he spots, um, I can't remember who he's, he spots somebody by the river. I'm, I'm blanking on who. Uh, who. Who does he spot by the river, and then he follows into the into the city? The, um, the the other um, what, what I don't remember his name. Um, the other uh, uh, guy from the uh, from the gosal compound from the, yeah the, the the servant who's kind of like servant. adopted right yeah he's like uh, sort of part of the family right he uh yeah so he's possibly he's following through and it's it's wordless and it's just a series of great compositions of him being trapped within the maze of the city and so uh, to what you were talking about earlier with how while it is not a modern city it is still psychologically exploring the same space that the earth the the new urban environment creates of being lost in the maze, being trapped, trapped within being pushed in on from all sides, increasing pressure, all that's still here. It's just being done with stone doorways that are thousands of years old instead of brand new uh, steel skyscrapers. And you still have a lot of the elements that we've been looking at. You've got the, the, it's, Instead of the the mansion, you've got the the family compound. Um, you have the gangsters' lair. You have the the points of commerce and the and the port side area. You've you've got and you've got um, in this case the there's no detective office, but there's a, a hotel hotel room that he is shacked up in. So a lot of those familiar elements are still they're they're present, but they've been adapted for the the circumstances here. Agreed. No, it, is, it it definitely pops through throughout. Uh, you also flagged here, and uh, this also hit for me in that very opening uh, when the gangster comes talk to his old friend about purchasing this this lucky statue, and it's all deep shadows and ominous threat. And that felt that opening scene. I was like, oh yeah, this is this is a noir. And then that feeling kind of ebbed and flowed throughout the rest of of the movie. But that opening is a very strong, and again, it's using the mise-en-scene and the lighting and, and the cinematography to really evoke an unsettled psychological state within the characters. And I think that is part of that core essence of, of noir. Yeah. If there's a, if there's a classic noir that, that it feels like, uh, like Ray is very aware of here, it's Maltese Falcon. Sure. Um, the, the, the priceless the, objects, the, 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 the statue, the, yeah. um, the, uh, you know, plays out, plays out differently obviously but um but we have a uh, 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 you know not a murdered partner but here we have 
we have a um, inciting incident that really gets under the skin of Faluda after um, after they have their visit to the gangsters' lair, and um, and and his companion Jatayu is uh, is used as target practice for um, by a by an old knife wielding man. Um, I mean, certainly not going to find that in any other noir we watch. I'm I'm nope. pretty confident. <laughs> And that was a very long, drawn-out scene. It is very tense because you don't know exactly what you know. Something's going to happen, and uh, and I sure didn't expect that to be the direction it went. There's a there's the question of if there's if there you know is the drink poisoned? Um, what kind of move is he going to pull? Okay, he's got a gun on them. What does it mean? Um, and then and then um, Jatayu, who I want to talk about more, is uh, is is. A comic character, and he's clearly there to lighten the mood. But here, he's the one that's in immeasurable danger, and and our and Faluda, our detective, is just um, he's he's not really coming up with a plan. He mm-hmm. he doesn't seem he seems to accept that there's nothing he can do to affect the the situation. Yeah, it's pretty reactive throughout, and even outside of that, I mean, not to say that you know detectives are often put in situations where they don't have all the, but he is. He gets a little more motivated once it becomes personal, as it so often does, and he wants revenge for what was done to his friend. But you know, it's it to me. It, it also very much felt like golden age mystery, where it is the detective is intellectual pursuit, right? And he is getting hired, so it's not purely for the 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 sake of of the mental challenge, but. It does have sort of have that air to me through a lot of the runtime of Faluda being like, hmm, this is a interesting mystery and not, you know, there are things at stake here that matter to me and other people. Yeah, I think um, I think for me with when it comes to when it comes to Faluda more the the film itself has um, in how it's shot and how the story progresses. It's got enough noir trappings that I I I can easily buy into how it fits in there but Faluda is no is no Bogart he's mm-hmm. he he really is more inspired by by the Holmes type sleuth or uh or or the Agatha Christie sleuth than he is um with anything that we've been looking at at least since uh at, at least since the gentleman detective era and even then he's his own he's his own breed he is although so the title that i watched that we ended up not covering the zoo is an adaptation of somebody else's detective story uh that is an indian writer that i can't remember i did research at the time but that was weeks ago and, and it's it's all gone i'm getting older my brain's turned to swiss cheese but yeah but it, it feels very much of a piece with like it could have been a faluda character where is even more of a straightforward like holmes parallel where the main character is this brilliant detective and he's got a dr watson who i think is also a writer and figure and and who goes with him on the adventures and it helps him out um and the main the main calling card for this other detective is that he's a master of disguise which leads to a very i for me as a complete outsider to this culture and difficult to parse the racial politics of a Indian man in yellow face pretending to be a Japanese person and the racial stereotypes that it was engaging with in relation to that. 
was, it was it's it's a whole can of worms that I was just kind of glad that we're not fully digging into here. But it is that's, an interesting movie. But it feels very, very much yeah. with this in in that same way that it's it's the same kind of detective character. So I feel like this is to to me that is what is of interest to Ray in bridging both these movies is the intellectual exercise of challenging the detective and then seeing him overcome the mystery of the case. Yeah, I think, um, I, I think that that's, uh, um, that's very true here. And, and that, and that itself does not, that does not feel at home with the other noirs that we've watched. It's, it's such a different motivation mm-hmm. and add to that. Um, and this is not, this this maybe not as much, but he, this is the the first time that we have a, a um, we have a posse. Uh, our detective mm-hmm. is not alone. He has he has two constant companions, uh, Jatayu and uh, Jatayu and Tapesh Tapesh, um, mm-hmm. and, and and they're with him throughout. And and there's no um, you certainly have uh, you know moment where you're where you're worried for for Tatayu, but maybe you wouldn't be as worried for him if you, if you were viewing this as a series and you knew that these characters were going to recur over and over again. Um, I don't have that context to approach it from. Um, but, but it is, it does change the dynamic when you, um, when you feel like the detective isn't, uh, isn't alone versus the world. When you feel like he has some people he, he knows he can trust and can count on. And it kind of reminds me in that way of the non Marlowe Chandler adaptations that we looked at, where you have the noir butting up against this main character who is more golden age, but especially the Falcon takes over, right? Where you've got the Falcon and his, you know, British foppish witty style and his sort of lighter comedic energy entering into this classic Chandler labyrinthian plot of uh, mooks looking for their ex-girlfriends and people <laughs> killing each other and and you know it's it gets really brutal by the end at, at that movie when she she kills him in cold blood and it just goes back to, to having like little witty asides and this this movie isn't like that in, in in that in that way, but it does remind me of that sort of merging of those two traditions and into one package of both the like fun golden age detective here, as represented not just by Fluta but by the the group of friends, and and they're all kind of like fun personalities bouncing off of each other, and and again that's almost that that TV feeling of like. Here's the cast of characters that you come back to watch every time entering into a plot that is at times more noir and filled with morally gray areas and that kind of thing. Yeah. Um, and, uh, and from, uh, from what we, we did not watch um, the previous, um, the, the previous film adaptation uh, which was before this one, uh, the Golden Fortress. Yes. But that one was um, was by as we were looking into it was a, a bit more more of a fantasy blended 
than than this one. So clearly there's room for some range, but also these are ultimately bits of, of pulp fiction. Right, let's uh, say and, it, it pulling from the same overall pulp tradition. Yeah, um, you know, this is here to thrill and entertain readers, viewers. And so, you know, it's a it's a different culture and it's a different um, it's a, a different way to approach this. Uh, and certainly when it comes to drawing influence here, it's clearly not only taking from noir, it's pulling from everything we understand to be about detectives um, as, as it pulls that together. And, and by uh, the 60s and 70s, that is an increasingly large umbrella. Yeah. I mean, I, we've already been seeing it with Harper and Marlowe, and then definitely by the time you get to Long Goodbye in, in Chinatown, and it's just going to keep growing is the way that film is in conversation with itself and has more things that it can talk about as it continues to be in conversation with itself. And you more and more, you have filmmakers who are also film lovers in a way that you can't have, that you can't parallel with somebody who was born in 1900. Yeah. um, It's, uh, it's only going to continue expanding and expanding as we keep going forward. Um, And, and it's hard to fully even, it, you can you can look at something and you can play spot the reference and you can try and track where where someone's influences came from, but um, but it's really hard to kind of place yourself into all right. What what did Satyajit Ray probably <laughs> take in? What led him What led him to um, to turn from making films like the Apu trilogy and then move in to do a hard pivot into detective fiction and um, and and movies like that. That's something that uh, you know. There's just there's too many gaps in my uh, Western, Midwestern <laughs> uh, knowledge to really be able to fill in those. Kind of reminds me of Bergman doing uh, Sweet Summer, uh... Smiles of a Summer Night. Yeah, Smiles of a Summer Night, yeah. where you just like, you know, taking a break from all the bleak. Is God real? Has He abandoned <laughs> us? To just have some fun with beds sliding into other rooms so that people can bang. I think, I think that was a little earlier, right? I think it he, was earlier. I, no, you're, I, think, you, you, I think he then, he then he went he, It wasn't so much of a break as a pivot God from... silent is God dead. But it, just um, more in terms of like <laughs> diversion outliers in a, in a, a beloved auteur's filmography. It is, uh, that was what it was reminding me of. That's very true. So it's, uh, you know, fortunately I did not start there with Bergman. I think I started with The Seventh Seal with Bergman. So at least that was one where I was more traditional... Uh, I st- I started with Fanny and Alexander, and I don't know that I'd recommend that being the entry point. But but uh, but Se- Seventh Seal uh, probably good 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 way to jump in at our beloved music box. Ah, oh, I miss that place. Huh. All right, we only touched so, like there's a lot of topics I, here. I know I've got, I've got uh, I, some quick some quick hits on other other thoughts I've got here. Uh, Jatayu is a really interesting character to me because and. Uh, we're definitely going to get back to this uh, in our next our next entry, but uh, in, in it feels like we we actually have a a character who is very clearly coded as being gay. Uh, did and, not. Uh, I take your word for it. I did not read for me at all. Um, for for this how, could also be a, a commentary on the quality of the subtitles of the movie, of the version that I was watching. His fascination with the muscle man and. And his um, and his the way he looks at him and the way he feels his muscles. <laughs> I I think that that I think that his character was being 
and this muscle man character is living inside the the hotel uh, or in the hotel alongside them and and Jitayu develops this real the this real fascination with him that is revisited several sure, times sure i'd be hesitant i don't know i because for me and also i mean you've watched more indian cinema than i have so certainly you may have more reference than i do but to me i, I don't want to impose a western concept of masculinity onto a movie from a non-western source and so to what degree that is just sort of a different understanding of male affection and a male male comrade camaraderie and not to say also not to turn around and be like they were roommates everybody they weren't you know uh as as so often historians uh whitewashing uh, the history of actual real queer people in in all of civilization so i don't want to go in that direction either i'm not saying he is or is not i'm just saying i personally i am not reading anything into it one or the other because I don't have enough cultural context to properly place that behavior in within that time period and in that 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 context. Well that's that's completely fair and and perhaps if some if there are are, are people listening to this that may have more insight into that then I we think we're up to a dozen listeners. So maybe one of you welcome. Is well um, we versed. welcome any any further dialogue around that. Uh, uh, music uh, to touch on, um, I, I think another one one element to this that I, uh, I think initially kind of pulls you so far away from that that noir mindset that we've been living in week after week here is that we're just not used to hearing sitar in in context of of something noir, and it, it, it's a sound that pulls you away from what we've been conditioned to think of as um, a, as a noir sound, whatever that that sound may be then again the third man can pull out the zither and and take it in a different direction and and do that quite effectively so who's to say there's not room for for other sounds here i do think that the at, at the first half of the movie um the music feels very much like it's setting a different pace mm-hmm. um but but in the in the back half it kind of as as um as pursuits escalate and plots come into motion, um, the music kind of rises to meet that. And I think takes on a, a very different shape then. Absolutely. Uh, there is well, one a- thing I, I just want to, this is what I texted you after I watched it is oh, yes. his terrible gun safety. He, yep. you yep. know, he tells this yep. kid, like when he first sees him, he's like, I'll, I'll show you my gun sometime. And then he comes back and he shoves his gun in the kid's face, not as a threatening way, just sort of a, take a look at this gun and opens it and it's clearly loaded and then gives it like the kid could just stuck his finger up into that trigger and shot himself in the face. Like you just, you, you treat a loaded gun with respect everybody. I mean, setting aside the state of this country's uh, relationship to guns and, and all that just on a and, basic uh, gun safety level, you don't put a gun in a kid's face. And, and the film ends with the kid firing his little prop gun. Yep. whatever with um the, the last uh, when when asked how he solved it the, the 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 child yells with brain power and then he fires a gun which is um i guess the the union of sherlock holmes and noir coming to, to one uh i don't i don't sure. know sure sure tristan <laughs> sure um, 
That's what's happening there. Uh, there is a police presence here, but it's pretty, uh, it's barely there. Um, it's, it feels kind of obligatory that you would, you would involve the law uh, to. Well, there's to, another connection with this movie that we, that you did not watch that we're not actually discussing this episode, but it just sort of, again, underlines that this through line of, of cops who are very familiar with the detective already and are in, in these rate movies that, and they just kind of go, Oh, this famous detective has arrived to my city and is going to help me solve a crime. Great. Like that's it. And they're just, they're in antithesis to a lot of noir that we have. And we'll watch where, where the police are the antagonists or at the very least an obstacle and are, you know, working against the detective and are mistrustful of the detective here. It's you're a world famous, brilliant man who solves crime. So please do my job for me. Yeah. Um, and then also uh, we've got a religious element here, which is not something we have seen much in, in others, but I think it's, I, to me, uh, to me, it is almost like how we're in a holy city. We are in a, a city that they make a point of talking about how many millions of temples are, are, are here. This to me was like, like obligatory in the sense that the film industry is in LA noirs. Mm-hmm. It, like you, you would not set a movie here without acknowledging the existence of, of the religious presence. And, and we have our, um, our, our sham saint who's really working for the gangster. Um, so I, I think that it makes for an interesting backdrop and, and element to include. Yeah, no, that feels very, another, another faction, if you will, that's at play. You know, it feels like a, an apt comparison. Yeah. Uh, and finally, uh, I, I, I really, um, I, I was really drawn to the recurring theme here that there's, there's a lot of in, um, inspiration drawn from stories. It opens with a bit of Hindu lore in, as the, as, as the child in the compound is being, is being told about the different uh, mounts that the gods ride and, um, and then, of course, the child has got uh, he's got his various books. He's a fan of Tintin. Uh, I did enjoy uh, you know, that name checking uh, another beloved adventure serial. Uh, and and he's obsessed. You can't with see my office, but it does have several different pieces of Tintin paraphernalia on the walls and on the desk. So that is, I did enjoy that. Yeah, nice to uh, nice to get that uh, call out to that. Did not necessarily expect that in uh, in a uh, Indian film. Um, and then Chitayu, who is a novelist, um, and his own novel inspiring the the bait and switch of the idol that's um, that's pulled off at the end. So um, it's really nice to see that that plot point kind of come full circle. Um, I I enjoyed that quite a bit. Well, I think we're we're in for two drastically different films tonight, and I and I think they've done uh, they've gone in such different directions, and um, and and. As we're seeing noir start to sprawl out and we're seeing its effects globally, um, it's going to manifest itself in a lot of different ways. And in the case of Ray's film, this feels, and I, I say this with love and respect, but this feels like a bit of a cinematic dead end. I don't see uh, where the elephant god has gone on to to have a, a lot of influence on, on even fil- films within India or even... Um, films within the the detective genre there's not there's not much that i see moving beyond here uh and and you know again open to being educated on that uh that's what we're here for to keep watching movies and to keep 
learning, but this this feels like taken a lot of inspiration from classic detective stories, stylistically from noir, but certainly from literary traditions of, of Christie and, and Conan Doyle. And it's pulled them together in its own distinctly uh, Indian adventure serial, Bengali adventure serial. Uh, it's a To me, it's a fascinating, if it's a dead end, it's a fascinating one. Um, I, I enjoyed getting to, to see this kind of worldview and, uh, and uh, had a good time with it. Yeah, I did not love it as much as you did, um, but it was it was interesting, and I did appreciate. And we'll talk about this more, I think, at the end of the episode. Beginning to sort of see just how far you can push noir, and like how just how flexible it can or cannot be. And as we saw with William Powell, it can be useful to to sort of take the opposite and and sort of say, all right, you can define a thing as much by what it is as what it is not. <laughs> which may also be going from a point of contention as we get to the end of this episode. But let's, we've talked about The Elephant God for a long time. Let's talk about the movie that I am most excited about. And if you you really wanted to cover The Elephant God this season, I really wanted to cover Yokohama BJ Blues. So let's talk about BJ. jump in. Released in 1981 and directed by Aichi Kudo, the film stars Yusaku Matsuda as BJ, a blues singer and detective in the portside town of Yokohama. BJ, our singing detective, tracks down young Akira, where he's been living as the boy toy of a Yokohama Yakuza boss named Ali. When he reports this back to Akira's mother, she quietly lets the boy go, and for a spell it feels like we don't have a case. Uh, but soon after, BJ's friend on the police force, uh, Rio, I believe is his name, um, is murdered, and BJ sets off on a trail that will lead him back to Ali and will thrust him into a fanciful liaison with Akira himself. Things come to a head in a heated showdown, which ends with Akira dead and Rio's widow sailing off from the port. Uh, and then a musical number in a morgue. <laughs> um, it was beautiful. Uh, uh, yeah. Uh, Gosh, uh, so tell tell me where Fred you you programmed this. Um, where did you find this movie? Because it was not on my radar in the slightest, and it was wonderful. I definitely found it in Letterboxd. I think I found it. I you know in when we started seriously talking about doing this podcast, I began pulling together a bunch of different sources to cover movies we should talk about and. One of the things that I was, and we've talked about on this show, is you know we're really excited to watch new movies as much as we are in revisiting old ones, and and part of that is trying to find the titles that people don't talk about as much anymore. You know, there's there's a reason that everybody still talks about Maltese Falcon or Big Sleep or Chinatown or Long Goodbyes because they are truly great movies that that had a massive influence, and it's great for us to revisit and talk about those as well. But at the same time, I I personally. As you know, as somebody and I, I, Tristan, I imagine I, I speak for you too. As somebody who just loves movies, I'm always like, I, I, I am always. Every time I start a new movie, I'm always hoping and excited that it's going to be something I fall in love with. And so, this is a big part of the project: is 
let's find some of these gems that have been a little bit forgotten and a little bit under underappreciated and a just get to enjoy them for ourselves and b share them with other people and so i think this was from one or two of the lists that i sourced and put together this was on there and then i was going through and really trying to find these these interesting titles and and this one when i started reading the description and reading people's a critical response to it it seemed like a great fit so i was like this is something that we have to cover and originally we we're going to cover it with um the drowning pool not the drowning pool in place of the drowning pool we we're going to partner it with night moves and then uh you want to do the elephant god and so we ended up bringing elephant god in and pairing it with the bj blues and doing the drowning pool with night moves um and while i think Tonally, there is definitely a connection between Night Moves and Yokama BJ Blues, and and they both are sort of in a the existential tailspin end of a noir detective movie. I think that this pairing also the the two pairings we end up with make make a lot of sense, and I think work quite well. This this is such a a standalone almost. There's not anything that's quite like it. There are things mm-hmm. that are sort of like it. But it is very much on its own wavelength, and that is why it is a damn great movie. And uh, and I I am just I'm impressed with the find. This is what this is what I'm excited to be doing this podcast for finding movies like this, uh, especially ones that are just completely off my radar. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, I was reading. Apparently, you know, I, I don't have the deepest knowledge of Japanese cinema, especially post-1955, pre-2005 ish, that 50-year range, I guess. Essentially, like, post-Ozu, pre-Korieta and Kiyoshi Kurosawa um, are are really kind of what I like. Not even that I know that much about those eras either, but at least I've seen some movies. Um, But apparently, the 80s in Japan were considered sort of a, a lost decade of cinema and that at the time at the time when right right before their economic crash when they when they were you know ascendant in world in the world economy and at the time in the u.s the the running cultural conversation was everything's about to be bought out by the japanese i mean that's why it's so much of cyberpunk is based around the idea of japanese companies owning everything it's because in the early 80s that was where the country was as it was just sort of like the Japanese are going to own everything like Sony bought Columbia. You know what I mean? Like that's where we're going. Although I guess that was, that happened later, but anyway. Um, so because of the, you know, uh, apparently there is sort of a, a, a general understanding that this uh, economic bounty that was happening at the time sort of, lessened the artistic drive of a lot of the filmmakers of of the 80s and so there's it's sort of considered a a bit of a fallow point in japanese cinematic history but you still have movies like this and that's always my opinion too is that anytime anybody's like yeah this year wasn't a great year for movies i'm like there's always great movies out there sometimes you have to work harder to find them but they're always great movies being made and released i i didn't um, I think that's fascinating, and I didn't know that. And but when you when you say it, come to think of it, uh, putting putting Miyazaki, Akira, some of those aside, uh, pu- putting anything a- um, animated aside, I'm not that familiar with Japanese cinema in the '80s at all. Uh, and I think what what is 
what's interesting here um, in, in reading up on it, uh, uh, Kudo, uh, the director, um, he cut his teeth at the, at the Toei company, I think that's how you pronounce it, um, uh, uh, which is production studio responsible for a whole lot of genre fare. Um, they did samurai movies. Um, in the 70s, they were doing the women in prison films. Um, and they have one, um, uh, I, I've seen virtually none of these movies, um, so I can't comment much, but, but one from the 60s is a, uh, they did uh, Horrors of Malformed Men is, uh, is a wonderfully uh, glorious nightmare of a movie um, that I, I would recommend, but largely not familiar with what the, this studio was putting out that, that Kudo had been, had kind of come up in. He was definitely a contemporary of Seijun Suzuki, so but Suzuki's films are are far more well known, and uh, as we saw with Detective Bureau Two Three. But there's certainly a lot of you you can see the the genre film um, as part of the backbone of this, but it's it's still it's concerned with doing its own thing. It's not subscribing to any one um, one way of uh, I don't know one one type of film. It's it's very much eschewing normal genre conventions. So I totally agree. And I think one of the things that I find fascinating about this is it's it's an acknowledged influence on Cowboy Bebop, which you can totally see. The protagonist, the music, the style, all of that is it definitely, you can feel its presence in Cowboy Bebop. Ryan Johnson has spoken in interviews many times about the fact that Cowboy Bebop was a huge influence on Brick. And he actually made his cast watch at least one episode. I, don't, I doubt the whole series, but he, he and, and crew, he's sort of like, this is what we're going for. Which is interesting because it's not like, I would say that there is a clear aesthetic influence, like connection between Yokohama BJ Blues and Brick than there is between Cowboy Bebop and Brick. But clearly, unless Ryan Johnson also saw Yokohama BJ Blues, and I just haven't seen it mentioned in an interview, which is definitely possible. I haven't been exhaustive or anything. But if not, it's just kind of fascinating that this influence is able to sort of transmute into animation and then transmute into a Western indie. And still, I mean, you could program these two movies back to back as double header from the way that both are very clearly making use of sort of limited funds and making the most out of that to still tell sort of a sprawling noir detective story to the way that they are visually and aesthetically not interested in being noir movies, even as they are on a story level, taking a lot of what makes noir noir and paying true homage to, to those elements, even down to just, the fact that both movies have a real blue tint to them. I mean, like that alone. Oh boy. Yeah. Is, is um, just through, and I'm sure part of that is just sort of like, again, the limits of, of uh, color correction at, at the price point that they're both operating. But to me, it's just sort of such a fascinating. I wouldn't correct the damn thing. Oh no, it's beautiful. <laughs> and it works wonderfully for both, but it is such an interesting that you can put those two movies side by side that, but I don't think we're directly in conversation with each other. But just because of this chain of, of ownership, not even ownership, this chain of influence that they are still like kismet, you know, I just, I love, I love finding those, those links so much. It's, that's just one of uh, the, you know, the deeper you dive into, uh, into, into um, 
hopeless movie viewership, the more like you live for those kind of moments where you're like, you, where you see that, that through line between something and, and, you know, wonder how, how it came to be. And, and yeah, Cowboy Bebop is, uh, is you, if, if for anyone that hasn't watched it, uh, do, do so right now, stop, put this on pause and go watch some Cowboy Bebop and, and then come back. But yeah, it was a both uh, of us that definitely I did it, that it was a, primary noir influence and one of the things that got us into into the genre i mean that definitely definitely was for I, me i think it was more of a primate i i i came into bebop at a point where i already had had seen a bunch of noir so mm-hmm. um so i think it was more formative for you but i still love it to pieces but yes i highly recommend the original <laughs> animated not the netflix tv show <laughs> i i watched the first episode of that it, i don't even know I, if it's good or bad it was just so <laughs> uncanny watching it after having watched and loved the original so much that I, it, I, I just couldn't engage with it. Like I literally could not try to take it as its own thing. And I just like, I can't give this a fair shot one way or the other. I'm just not going to watch it because it, it the, the original is too close to my heart. So. That's fair. I, it, so, um, so to, to make it, to make the connection clear, uh, cause I think we, we we mentioned the influence, but very specifically, the the film star Yusaku Matsuda is an acknowledged influence on on Spike in uh, Cowboy Bebop, and it's hard not to see it. Uh, I don't think anyone would need to have told me that for for me to have the big have jacket, seen that right color palette. Yeah. Uh, the, also, the the fashion in this the movie style. Is, is there there is there is real style here on a on a level. What I have uh, only only Shaft really goes um, goes in this mm. direction where you can take the you can take the detective this classic detective archetype and everyone else has been we'll just put the detective in a suit mm-hmm. detectives in a suit he'll be a relic of his time whatever he, uh, but 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 it's really refreshing to see um, to see a striking outfit um, to ha- having a look that still very much screams. Like this, this person is a detective. You can feel it. It it lives there, wraps them up. Uh, but it's just not the the same stuffy suit that Marlo's been wearing for decades. Right. And even the backstory feels like Spike's backstory, right? Where he and his buddy were here. They were cops together in Cubby Bebop. They were gangsters together. They both fell in love with the same girl. There was a falling out. I mean, more of a falling out in Cowboy Bebop than there was here. The other guy got the girl. The main character walks away with uh, a lifetime of regret. And then fate brings them all back together. It ends in tragedy. And, you know, I mean, that to me is the the heart of the classic noir, right? We talked a little bit about with the last Marlowe episode, that that idea of the the Hemingway hero, the the hero where something has been done to him and and enters the the story already in a place of regret and that is that is this guy he he, he is he is he feels of a piece too with again with night moves and also with harper where you used at the start of the movie you know we're on the verge of being divorced and living alone and and sort of living a hollow life and in harper's case or in night moves case finding out that your wife's cheating on you and really starting to question what your life's about and what your purpose is and why are you doing this job? And, and it feels like he's BJ's in the sort of the same spot. No doubt about it. I mean, he is aloof even by most detective standards 
um, that that we've seen. Totally, I mean, we're 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 not like uh, Faluda in the, the last one. He's got he doesn't have an an entourage that he's moving around with. Uh, he's still a social being. He's still. I mean, he's got apparently like a dozen girlfriends that he just right. kind of drops in on, but. But also, there's doesn't seem to be any real connections with any of them, right? Like his his closest friend is maybe the the guy who deals in music. It's another totally different spin, or it feels like the next evolution of the of the detective character, one that we haven't seen deployed yet. And this movie does not feel like it is set to me. Does not feel like a, a movie from 1981. Um, mm. the, it this feels, uh, and you know, it doesn't. Uh, considering that we're watching, we just discussed a movie that does not feel modern at, at all um this comparatively feels uh like a massive jump in time from everything we've just been watching even though it's only just crossing into the 80s yeah it's it is i mean i would argue that it is it is timeless right that it is i think that's a little, the word and, and i think in part because it is a little heightened right that uh weirdly okay here's two other influences that, that or reference points that made me think of were and not even that i think that that the filmmaker had seen them or there was trying to be in conversation with each other just uh, as reference points one is heathers right where heathers is existing in that heightened world and it, the, the language that it's made up in the style in the style and so it allows heathers to escape being dated because you can watch it and you're there's nothing that actually grounds it to a specific time now maybe part of that here is also just a lack of familiarity with Jap- Japan in the 1980s. And so maybe if you were in this port town and one of the interesting things too, is that this uh, the city that this is set in is the one that Akira Kurosawa sent many of his noirs in. It's the, the, oh. that, huh. that city. And I think in part, as you, as you've alluded to a few times, that it is a port city and it is a place of commerce. And so it is a place where a lot of money moves through and a lot of things come and go. And uh, is a classic juncture point for, for crime and, and corruption. So it's rife for this kind of storytelling. Um, and I think it's something that, that we haven't really seen uh, a whole lot of uh, multi Falcon. Yes. But otherwise um, when you're in the in the LA noirs, you're just so um, you do end up at the at the water sometimes. But you're you're. Uh, it's not about yeah. It's not about, about commerce. commerce. It's not about There's, import export. City's about every everything else under the sun. But but it's not. It's never commerce. But yeah, I that feel is, this, this, the San Francisco noirs. I think deal with that a lot more because a lot those tend to be a lot more about like the heroin trade and drugs coming in from China and you know if, if you're looking at stuff like. Uh, the lineup or the 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 red kimono or the green kimono whatever that one is i i feel like i've seen that more in, in the san francisco movies whereas you're totally right yeah. the la movies it's just sort of like we go to the waterfront but it's a place where a car goes up pier. it's not a place where you consider the cargo ships coming in right it almost it feels like an underused trope in noir the mm-hmm. the, the port city like it, it's it's such a natural fit and it makes so much sense and yes it, the fact that maltese falcon uses it and early on it it is something that I think of being noir, but it really isn't. Certainly not from what we've been going through. Done. To I mean, that. I think with the detective, I think you're right with the detective, but I don't know. I mean, like, would you, uh, you know, lady from Shanghai? Yeah. It, it, yeah. That's not quite commerce, but it's a little bit that you know transport in and out of of port cities and and how that kind of facilitates a lifestyle outside of the law and and that 
and the lawlessness of international waters too, right? I think it's tapping into that larger filmic tradition, but it's still not even specifically what this is about, right? I mean, there is the massive climax, which I do want to talk about because I don't fully understand what happened, which is okay. I think that's... I don't, I don't know that I do either, but I, I think... I, I think that that's all right. It, it stuffs a lot in. in yes, uh, there's really a bunch of reveals stuff. at the end. I mean, my takeaway was that the dead best friend was not sleeping with the gangster's daughter. He was sleeping with Akira because he plays, he, he remembers him saying he was sleeping with my daughter while he looks at Akira's dead body in the trunk. Who killed Akira? I think the gangster did because he you know, he was, that's why he was, that's why he killed. And in that way, it is very classic noir in that, and it almost Cohen's maybe, I don't know. I'm trying to think of the right reference point here of like the, you know, there's, there's all these criminal conspiracies and machinations and grift and all of this going on, but ultimately it comes down to who betrayed who, and it's all undone over a bullet because of a betrayed lover. Right. Uh, and that, that is also classic, classic noir. Yeah. Um, but I think that brings us to one of the big interesting things about this, which is like our first real look at characters who, who are homosexual, right. That like we've had coded characters we've had in the seventies, we started getting supporting characters who were acknowledged, uh, for example, in the second in uh, the farewell, my lovely um, from the seventies, the in that in that one they do acknowledge that the uh, male escort is is gay, but you know he's he's a tertiary character who's right. in two or three scenes, and that's it. it this is our main character. This right. is uh, this is very um, this is very different from what we've seen before, and I mean, uh, the majority of the characters in this movie are queer, right? Like just on a mathematical level. Majority of the characters with, with dialogue are are right. queer, um, and it's and it's not treated as a big deal in any. It, it, but We're at the same gay. time, at the same That's... time, we've been watching movies um, uh, from the seventies that have all of a sudden had this newfound freedom to make sex much more explicit. And here we're back to having a veil on everything. It's not much of a veil. It's pretty damn clear what's going on. But um, but in that but I kind of I kind of liked it in that sense because it forced um, it it forced it back into almost how classic noir would handle sexuality where it would try and walk a line without uh, without quite quite going over it but it was still very obvious what was going on. Well, I think it's it treats the gay characters and relationships that way, but then. You know, I mean, there's a scene where he talks to Ali's alcoholic girlfriend and like, you know, gropes her. And, and I mean, she's yeah. trying to seduce him. Like, this is very consensual, but like fingers her while getting the information out of her after also giving her some booze. And then it's just like, you're too wet, literally the line of dialogue and then <laughs> leaves like just just blue balls her, I guess, essentially. I mean, it's. You know, it is capable of getting very explicit when it comes to the hetero. And also, like, right. when he goes right. to right. his uh, girlfriend's apartment 
and she's naked and he gets into bed with her and then it turns out that she was seeing somebody else who pops out from under the bed I, and BJ's just like, I don't care, man. I just want to sleep. I, I laughed so long at that. That was scene. a great gag. I, that was so what, funny. Just, just not caring. <laughs> I mean, it was beautiful. Just too tired. <laughs> and then, but then also like the, you know, specifically she's, you know, there's, there's a, uh, a, a, a assassination attempt and she's running around top. So, you know, like the, it, it, there are certain kinds of, explicitness that it can engage in and certain kinds that it can't it feels like but i think you're right that that then lends it an interesting throwback quality to the 40s and 50s when it had to be subtext um also much more directly acknowledging that these are gay relationships that they're talking about um i'd love to talk about the like date with akira in the middle it is it's it's like a a romantic comedy montage it's uh it's so um it, it it's unexpected uh, it it feels I I don't know it it feels destabilizing in the context of the the film I just wasn't I wasn't sure what it was launching into and then then again by that point the film had caught me off guard a number of times already so oh, yeah. I realized that uh, this was just adding to the pleasures of of this movie I, it's, um, it's uh, yeah it's it's following it pushes it outside of the genre even further but it doesn't matter because it's uh, it, I don't know. It was a delight. It, I mean, it definitely has the rom-com, but I feel like even more than that for me, it was reminiscent of French New Wave and especially Truffaut. Absolutely. In the way that it was using monologue over, you know, just the classic like montage combined with con- with monologue to get at, that is dialogue, but is also characters inter- internal states felt very Truffaut to me. It was, it was very Jules and Jim. Yes. Um, for sure. Uh, and um, and and probably probably something that it, that uh, Kudo was o- aware of. I would assume he's got some some. Yeah, I mean, by that point, like, uh, but also it it kind of one thing I would assume. Again, I'm just sort of extrapolating based on the the film itself and the way it was shot. And I, again, I'm assuming that it had a pretty modest budget. And so, you know, a simple way to like make the most of your day is just shoot them having fun in an empty train yard that you don't have to pay to use as a location (laughs) and then dub all the dialogue, not even dub, just do the dialogue as ADR after the fact that you put over it. And so, you know, necessity is the mother of invention. It results in a great striking sequence, but I think that that, in its own way, also harkens, and many of the other choices, I, I, there's so many interesting bits of framing in this movie that are both aesthetically pleasing, but also feel like if we do one setup, we don't have to, you know, and we do it in five takes, that's an hour of filming as opposed to doing it in 20 setups and then it's a full day of shooting. You almost or like never... The, the out, like some of the, some of the locations, it feels like they just stole those locations, right? Or like yeah. The interrogation scene is very carefully shot through a window with bars, but you can only see the back wall of the room. And so I'm definitely like, this was a ground floor apartment that had bars in the window that they were able to shoot into and make it look like an interrogation room. And the bars are effectively evoking the interior, you know, both literalizing the set and evoking the interior mindset of the character, but also you don't have to go and build or try to find a prison set that you can film and you can just do it in your buddy's garden apartment. Um, and so I think that that 
is also true of so many classic noirs. You know, I mean, we've watched from the classic year, we definitely watched some noirs that that were a pictures and had leading stars and and were big budget affairs. But a lot of classic noirs were, as we talked about, were, were B pictures and a lot of the stylistic innovation that was going on was as much aesthetically driven as it was driven by, okay, how can we make the most of the set that was already built for a different movie and we now need to use for this one? Well, if we shoot it at a weird angle and have really intense lighting, we can hide the fact that we don't have a back wall back there. <laughs> no, you're, uh, it's so true. And the, just after, um, time after time in this, the, the, the camera approaches a scene from an angle I'm completely not expecting. Mm-hmm. And yet it, but it's it, totally right. It, 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 exactly right. It works. Um, there's, you, you never, you never settle in. You never, you never quite get comfortable in this movie. Um, you're, you're, you're always wondering what, you know, what vantage we're going to be approaching things from. And, uh, and, and it just is, it's shot really effectively. Mm-hmm. Um, uh, yeah, interrogation scene for sure. Shooting into the greenhouse. Um, mm-hmm. uh, I I love that. Uh, and, and and again knows how to um, know, knows how to really frame the um, um, BJ within the the context of the city uh, and and position him within the architecture. Yeah, I I cannot. I just this movie was fantastic. I I had suspected that I was going to love it going in because of its cinematic lineage and just from what I'd, I'd read about it, but it lived up to and exceeded expectations. Highly recommend it. This is, this is a good argument um, for me not reading up on films before I go in, because I did not look up a mm. damn thing about this before I started. And, and because of that, even more so because of that, it, it created one of my, my favorite find it certainly my favorite find of the the series so far okay. uh, i mean i knew going in but i also agree that this was I, my probably I, my favorite new new title to me i'm yeah well you found a a wonderful wonderful pick here so i um, win this is a competition and i've won sure you can have yeah, whatever <laughs> uh, we both get to enjoy the the wonders we're all winners here Yokohama BJ Blues and you too listener can be a winner if you listen to Yokohama or watch Yokohama BJ Blues also the music we barely even touched on it but no we didn't even talk about the music the blues are great and it's such an interest like it all of a sudden I was like oh my god that's right we haven't like this is a a style of music that we've not heard in a a noir yet but it is so apt and essentially is acting as like Greek chorus to he's singing his own Greek chorus in in the lyrics of the songs um music as an influence on a movie is not something we've been seeing with you know the a noir may use music effectively but for music to be a, a as much as genre to be a driving influence on on how a film structures itself and how um how it deploys it that's that's something new that that's why this feels innovative it feels fresh and and it's still it, it's it's been it, it's got uh, through lines, of course. We know how this inspires other movies, but it still feels like it it stands on its own. Mm-hmm. Uh, it hasn't been perhaps done to death so much that that um, it feels tired. Uh, actually, one last thing. Just unfortunately, it does engage in the barrier gaze trope in that you know the the central budding gay romance or queer romance at, at the heart of the movie does end in tragedy and death 
on the one hand, it is just sort of the larger trope of the genre is most most good things are doomed. But I just wanted to flag that if you had not watched it yet and you were sort of excited by our praising of or it, it, our engagement with its uh, you know actual queer content, it does still end in that way. So if that's just not something you're interested in watching, which is totally fair, just just fair warning on that. It doesn't just throw it away, though, uh, be- because even though Akira does not make it to the end, he gets a a ballad in a morgue uh, to to close things out. Um, so, uh, I, uh, I, this is we've been talking about incremental progress uh, as, as it, it is a movie from 1981. Like I'm not. This is more than incremental. Yes, I'm not. I'm certainly not judging the movie because again, it's 1981. And in Japan, like it's it's a very different than if this movie had been released today, then maybe it'd be a different conversation about like what what is what is tired and, and cliche, but um, and maybe even harmful. But you know, I I think personally, I'm a believer in trying to take the movie at its time, but also at the same time recognizing that a modern viewer may have issue with that and may have a line that they're just sort of like not for me, and that's that's also totally fair. All right, uh, so we still have to now bring them all to bring this all together. Oh what, boy, uh, how you really we... packed this one in. Uh, I I sure did. Uh, but, well, we kind of hit on a lot of the points I I outlined at the end as we've as we've moved through here. So with this being our 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 first season, um, I mean, thing, I think that one thing we're gonna come back to over and over again, and we're definitely gonna hit on this um, big at the end of the season is just what what constitutes noir and what doesn't we're going to be asking ourselves this as long as we're making episodes of this show um that's that's part of the point here but um you know we this this feels like a good point to check in on it because we are we are far from hollywood we're far mm-hmm. from classic hollywood um and 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 i don't think there'd be any argument here in looking at these and saying that that yokohama bj blues feels like a noir and um, and the elephant god doesn't quite have that feel uh, it, uh, that that we you know come to associate with it. Yeah, now, I mean, more than anything else, what I keep coming back to is what you proposed in the beginning of the season, which is you know that the noir is when the detective's soul is at stake, right? That that the case impacts them directly and emotionally, and Faluda definitely is impacted a little bit when his companion is threatened by the gangster but that is certainly not in the same league as so much else of what we see in the genre from the season where it is you know they get emotionally invested and they pay the price like the the classic noir detective has to pay a price by the end whether or not justice is served right like that's also part of it too is so rarely is there a neat wrap up and if and 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 beyond and even if there is there's still always a price paid whereas with um the elephant god there's there's no right it it is still ultimately a more intellectual for me an intellectual it lands as an intellectual pursuit of this is a clever mystery and can you solve it before i've solved it uh, as opposed to just sort of being like the mystery is the clothesline that we then hang the inner psychology and interesting characters that we're going to interact with along the way. Yeah, and I think uh, I mean with, with with Elephant God, he does the climax of the movie is about him mirroring an act of revenge for for what has happened. So I think I think the film does follow through within within its own 
uh, parameters on on that. Right, and it definitely but, is drawing on noir, but I think it is. But it's it yeah not his character is not a is not cut from the same cloth as as right. the detectives we have been watching so far. Right, like um, if he, this was a noir, he would have killed him, and he would have killed him in a way that was also acknowledging that this was a line that he had said he would not cross, but he has now been pushed to the point where he had to cross it. Right, like or something like that. But it would have been. Justice is finally served, but at what cost? Like, that would have then been like, this is a noir. But also that is not sustainable as part of an ongoing story where you're like, and next time, it's going to be the three same friends having the same fun adventure that I expect from this one. Uh, I think Putting it in a different way, with a lot of our classic noir detectives, they certainly do keep coming back. They do have more stories, but there's always the sense that they might just not come back one day. They might not come back. And also kind of resets right like they don't have the companions while it does reset in a sitcom way the companions i think is just such an interesting part of it where it is that feeling of like i'm watching my pals get an adventure rather than i'm watching this potentially break a human being on an emotional and, and mental level and then you know the like i think there's a reason that almost no marlowe's repeat and the one that did repeat repeated in two completely different contexts where one was in 1940s LA and or 1930s LA and one was in 1970s England you know what I mean like that that character has almost no continuity of supporting characters or world or anything like that he is each adventure is sort of Marlowe resets as the knight errant who will then have to pay for his trying to uphold virtues that he believes in in a world that does not agree with him I yeah I think um, um, I think uh, Big Sleep seventy eight is a is an interesting um, uh, counterpoint to Elephant God in that there's a there's a movie that in in uh, that literally has a classic noir actor and um, and character and story at it at its frame and aesthetically and how it's how it's done it doesn't feel like a noir despite having all of those those elements there like you know it is you know it, it does fit but it doesn't it, like yeah it just barely like, like it, over the line is like technically this yeah, is in like but yeah, um whereas whereas elephant god is um i i think draws much uh, finds much more stylistic uh, uh components in common with classic noir than than uh visually than big sleep 78 cares too sure uh but 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 the detective is um is so far removed from what we've been right well, I think, but, the, but I think that gets back to that they both ultimately have the same issue and not not in terms of like quality but in terms of the noirness of sure. of them as noir-ness. titles is, is that neither one is particularly interested in the internal state of the main character yeah and and maybe that's that's one of um, that uh, you know we, we come back to it over and over again. Uh, I, I'll be curious how we kind of land as we wrap up our mm-hmm. our, our detective season, but uh, you know it's still feeling like a good barometer at this point. Right, and I think you also point out here. I, I think what we are and we talked about a little bit. We are going to continue seeing is is the blending, and that there is. I think there is, so I actually just got in this conversation with somebody um, on, online, a very friendly conversation. They said that they were going to start listening to the podcast, so maybe they'll listen to this, even though they also said they very much disagreed with me in that they were, they're very much a 
noirs from 1941 to 1958 and like that is it noir is a is a movement it's not a genre it is not something that continued and it just becomes too diffuse after touch of evil to be able to like pull it together into a a defined genre but i think and i and you know ultimately these are all just labels that we're applying that are are personally driven and i certainly can't blame anybody for wherever they put that line. But for me personally, going on this journey and watching these all back to back, it is like, you can tell that there is still a noirness to some of these, to most of these titles, but then you get to the elephant God and it's like, yes, there is that noir strand, but it is woven in with so many other pulp storytelling genre elements. And, you know, even going back to tales of the gods, right. I think that also uh, kind of what you're getting at is that like, is drawing on stories that are within the pulp spectrum, but that pulp spectrum in- includes the adventure stories of gods themselves. That 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 is part of the tradition as well, um, and so it, it just becomes too diffuse to fully put in that noir camp, even though the the strand is still there. Yeah, um, I so so and and I was kind of trying to pull together my my thesis for where I stand after watching these these two and considering you know what road we have ahead. Um, and, and, you know, the more, the further away we're moving from classic noir, uh, and both that is both laterally when we're going internationally and, um, and that's definitely very true as we're moving forward in time, the less that it helps to think of noir in, in as, as a binary thing. And it's more as something that there's a strain that's going to live within the, the veins of a film or uh, in the mind of a director. Um, and, and of course there are going to be movies like Chinatown or like Brick, that are so consciously trying to exist within the, the, the rules of noir, uh, where they're trying to recreate that. But, um, but even when you're, you're dealing with, with movies like that, it's, it's kind of recreating the past, right? It's like playing, it, it's like playing dress up uh, a bit, and I don't mean that in a bad sense at all. I mean that in the coolest sense possible, those films are great. Uh, <laughs> but... Um, but but there's going to be the movies that try very much to recreate that feel of noir. And there's going to be movies that instead have the DNA of dozens of different in influences and noir just happens to be one of them. Um, and, and this is not new. Um, this, you know, is you can go back to um, the bandwagon in the fifties uh, making its, its climactic set piece, murder mystery and jazz and, and pulling in noir right right into there when it's still very much a musical uh but you know as we're we're only going to see this more and more and and it's going to get even harder to pull apart with international tours whose entry point is not just you know all of the, the you know the full history of western film you don't necessarily know what what point they're accessing it from uh but if you look into the filmographies of Wong Kar Wai or Dario Argento or Satoshi Khan or Park Chan-wook, or Wim Menders, there's, you know, name, name a, a international auteur, and he's probably got at least some, some noir that runs a, a little bit through his films uh, somewhere. Yeah, uh, no, that's totally true. And it's, I, but at the same time, I, I agree with almost everything you're saying, except that at the same time, we can both still say Yokohama BJ Blues feels like a noir, and elephant god does not right and so i think there is still 
something there. And that to say that Elephant God isn't worth exploring or discussing in the way that it is part of the larger noir tapestry, right? Like, I think that is is 100% right. But that there is some tipping point where you just go like, at, at its core, this has noirness, right? Like, even Big Sleep is like, 78 is like, oh, it is barely barely like by a hair because it, it follows I the think plot it so might closely. only I think it might only get there because it has the big sleep name and it has Mitchum but I don't know it's, that I would a, constitute it I put it as a technicality I, I don't know if that's I don't even know if those two things are enough I, um, I was, I'm like it is over by a hair for me but t- still to that point that you that you also feel like it's not right like you still like either way we're both in agreement that it has the influence, obviously, the obvious influence in the Big Sleep uh, seventy eight, yeah. and then also with Elephant God, that it is like drawing on that. It is part of that conversation, but there is something that is part of what we're exploring that we're trying to put our finger on. That that we do say, Yokohama PJ Blues is noir, and Elephant God isn't, or that Farewell My Lovely definitely is, and Big Sleep is a real toss up. <laughs> I guess you could go to, I don't know if we go back to our previous international episode. Um, it's, I mean, Godard is hard. Godard exists um, on the fringes of genre anyway. So it's kind of hard to. to... I mean, Godard is just playing with cinema, right? And yeah. so he is, he is playing, playing with noir. Structure. He's playing with genre. He... Right. But I think also. Um... It's hard to speak to Made in USA in that same in that same way. Very true. But I think also whenever we go to the international, it's always interesting too to consider the local crime films like traditions that are their own thing but are also part of noir like it depends again how just elastic you consider noir to be that do you consider yakuza films to be noir do you consider crime films to be noir from germany do you consider giallo films from italy or spain to be uh noir you know like noir has a very strong like very specific definitive american british tradition that it's drawing on and also obviously german expressionism feeding into that but there especially in the 60s and 70s you have a lot of other or the polizzi um strand of italian movies that came up alongside the gl like there are so many other pulp crime genres unto themselves that are developing in these different cinematic worlds that are in conversation with noir and arguably are a part of noir, but you don't want to, I also don't want to be like, it's all noir because American culture has been exported and is, is colonializing everything. You know what I mean? I want to be like, it's a fun conversation to be like, these are all the same idea in different places. Right. And so it's not like noir in that noir is the triumphant colonialist thing that is controlling everything, but more in that, like, is the same idea refracted across many different things. And so the same beam of light through a prism becomes noir, becomes creme, becomes Yakuza, becomes police. Well, and I, I, and I think that's certainly, that is a great point. And I, I think that's why, even though something like Yokohama Beach blues does feel noir to me, and we saw this with detective bureau two, three, um, the Yakuza film strain in there is, um, is also a clear defining influence, uh, blues a clear defining influence there's there's multiple things that this Mm -hmm. movie can be at one time and it just happens to i i do think have this kind of lightning in a bottle um alchemy that that makes it the the feeling it evokes feels at peace with what 
we accept to be a noir a, a noir mm -hmm. vision of a city right it just it works it clicks in that way uh i think it's an easy call to say that that it it's a noir i think that a lot of our other especially international uh, entries including detective bureau 23 are a little bit harder to make uh to say with quite the same certainty agree agree that makes this podcast so much fun if it, was, if it was all easy calls all the time, it would not be very interesting. All right. Oh, we should wrap this been, up. We've been going been for a while. Discussion. I did not think this episode um, would go this long, but um, we, have, we haven't been in, oh, international that often. That's I think true. There's a lot a built up. Break. Yeah. Yes. All right. So in honor, kiss me deadly, Fred, what's something you watched recently that's so good deserves to be glowing in that suitcase? Uh, I mean, I feel like to start, it's something that I watched that then inspired you to watch, uh, which is uh -huh. Irma Vep. I so I actually finished first. I watched Las Vampiras uh, in its entirety, and then I watched Irma Vep, which is certainly not required, but it was a great way to come into it and just have a little bit more context for for what they're doing and some of the references that they're making in Irma Vep. But Irma Vep is so much its own thing. Um, but yeah, Ir I liked Las Vampiras and. But it's a little bit more of a technical respect than a full-on engagement with the movie. Uh Vep just blew me away. The first, you know, I love uh uh Day for Night and just anytime you're just behind the scenes of a set and it's just night for night for day. I, I always feel day like I'm searching day, day for night. Uh anytime you're behind the scenes of a set and it's just chaos and and drama and big personalities and just the the pure luck and chance that goes into making a movie and also in general essayist uh, just sort of opining about and arguing with himself about cinema i'm always in for and and all that comes together beautifully and that's great like it was if this movie was just the first 90 percent of it i would be like this is a fantastic movie love it and then they show irma vet the movie within the movie and i was just like my god what just a face melter of an ending like truly one of the best endings in uh i, I mean it's pure visual uh, a breakthrough in terms of cinematic language and what the future is and it was so exciting even now 20 years later 25 i um yeah i after after you uh after i saw you watched it i was like it's been a while since i've seen Armavet. i i need to revisit it and uh and yeah it's it, it's so good um it's um it it's one of those like one of those rare movies that um i don't know it, it hit me it hit me really um intensely when i revisited it but i i loved it from before and i love i love Asaias. he's a great director he's he's such a cosmopolitan director mm -hmm. um yes. and um, and, and I love that about him. He's, he's interested in cultures crossing. He's interested in, um, in, in groups of people coming together that, that shouldn't always, that we don't think of as, as intertwining. And, um, and, and this is, and I'm a big fan of Clouds of Sils Maria and I'm a big fan of Personal Shopper, but, um, but, uh, but this is his best movie. Uh, and, and truly one of the great movies of the nineties. From what I've, from what I've seen, I'd, I'd have to agree. I'm not, I'm slowly making my way through cinematography, but but I'd have to agree. Um, and then I also just wanted to shout out a little indie from last year that I watched. Uh, we're all going to the World Fair, 
which the first 20 minutes I was in love with the most of it I thought was great the ending went in a direction that makes sense and I even sort of intellectually like what it's doing but you know ultimately just a sort of a result of my own like what I bring to the movie and what I would want to get out of it it was just sort of not quite the ending and final note that I would have wanted to have it all come together but even that aside uh it is just this fantastic low budget movie about a young girl who uh, or a young woman who um gets caught up in some sort of like online creepypasta challenge where you and lines of reality and games start to blur together and you can't and you're and you're sort of watching everything through um largely through her screen and so the you're just not sure to what degree is she taking this seriously or not and is she like really falling apart or is she just playing the game and contributing to this this online narrative that everybody's shaping and it, it is it just so beautifully taps into the loneliness of the internet and i uh was just really especially the the first two-thirds of it was was really moved and, and unnerved by by what it was doing and especially uh you know I've, i have a, a a young daughter now and so i've definitely found that the way that i relate to characters some has sometimes changed now where instead of relating to them as a protagonist i relate to them as what if my daughter went through that uh, especially if the character the, the main character is a younger character like under the age of 22 at this point um and so uh you know that was horrifying i was just like oh my god what i i brought my daughter into this hellscape of an internet in, enabled virtual world that she's just gonna be adrift <laughs> in the the blogosphere and, and lose herself and well so uh but always to say that it was is very impactful and very well done and and does a lot with a little so highly recommend we're all going to the world's fair excellent i've heard of it i've not seen it i will make note of that uh well my i mean i already i already chimed in that i uh that i my my irma vep um revisit was was Wonderful, and and I don't rewatch movies. I re- rarely rewatch movies. There are too many to to see out there for me to spend time revisiting things for the most part. Um, so it's pretty uncommon that I do. But after I rewatched Irma Vap, I also decided to rewatch um, one of my um, very favorite movies of all time. Also a nineties uh, a nineties film, uh, Chunking Express, which is uh, which is something that. Uh, that I came around to early in my college viewing years and uh, have probably watched it as many times as I've watched any, uh, any international film, barring maybe, mm. uh, maybe Spirited Away. But uh, just uh, an endlessly rewarding film that's bisected in two halves. The first, which, is, uh, which has a very noir feel to it, and the second, which has a very rom-com feel to it. Um, and playing with time and playing with space and, uh, and just kind of a, one of those deliriously beautiful films, uh, that, um, that is a, uh, as good of an argument for falling in love with cinema as anything I can think of. Um, so I, I thoroughly enjoyed getting to revisit 
Dear listener, I have not seen it. And I will not go on much more about it because Fred should fix that. Well, uh, yeah, it's, it's become another title where I'm like, well, we might be covering that in our next season. So uh, we'll we'll see. I'll definitely watch. I mean, I've I've watched a few One Car Wise so far and, and have loved every single one. So it's definitely going to happen at some point. Um, what is your most watched American movie or English language movie? Oh, uh, my most watched movie of all time with no no um, comparison is Clue. Mm, mine's probably either Jurassic Park or Raiders of the Lost Ark. Yeah, worthy. Those are those are good choices. Uh, Clue for sure. Big Lebowski, um, definitely mm. up there. Um, Monty Python and the Holy Grail, probably. Uh, I haven't seen it in years, but I watched it a lot as a child. Mm-hmm. But um, but that's not the other thing is I'm I'm like you. I, I, I after a certain point, I just stopped rewatching movies, and it's obviously like true of a lot of kids is that they just rewatch stuff because they're learning and and that's part of their learning process is just repeating it over and over and over again as i can attest personally now but <laughs> um yeah i've i've I reached that point and i was just like okay uh, there's too much to watch i'm not going to rewatch stuff if i don't if there's not a good reason to um and so it's it, but also that was when i really started engaging with foreign films so it's international films and so and There's just not the same opportunity or incentive to be like, yes, I'm going to rewatch In the Mood for Love 20 times. As as rewatching Irma Bepp reminded me, there is sometimes value in it because I can... You are not the same viewer that you were when you watched no. it last. It took rewatches of McCabe and Mrs. Miller, of, of The Red Shoes, for some of those movies to become like all-time favorites of mine. And, uh, and you know, Irma Bepp, I think, just hit me in the right way when I, I went back to it. So thank you, Fred. You're welcome, Tristan. I've been waiting for you to thank me for that. Uh, and now we both have to watch the miniseries and talk about it. Indeed. Did you see that they're um, turning... I'm, this episode's already so long, but did you see they're turning Cinema Paradiso into a miniseries? I did not. Uh, okay, I mean, sure. Why not? Uh, I mean, the why? Snakes, but the snake's running why? out of tail to eat. You know what I mean? Like, uh, like if we're... if Not, you know, great movies, but if this is where we're at, that they're like, we need IP, so we will take art house foreign films from the you know previous decades and turn that into miniseries just to have something to feed the beast you're like oh my god guys we all need to calm down yeah i don't know like i'll take more suspiria type remakes which are not as good as the original obviously but still are at least weird in their own right but well i mean you the, know. like the beautiful thing about the Irma, i haven't watched the miniseries yet but the beautiful but there's a reason i finally watched the movie and the original serials is that it it is commenting on the very thing itself, right? Like the the movie is a commentary on remakes, and I mean, obviously, also watching it now. So funny to listen to him talk about Tim Burton's Batman. What a what a more innocent time to be like, oh, this piece of blockbuster trash. Now we look back at it, like, my God, a blockbuster with a tourist vision. We never had oh, it so good. Tied tied to that tied to that, and and probably you know this will be not so far removed from when this airs or uh, to when I actually go uh well maybe a little but um but i i'm going to i'm going to go see a uh a off-broadway adaptation or destined for broadway adaptation of diwali dulhaniela jange uh, which is being directed by the the by the director of of the original film uh adapting his own his own bollywood movie into a into a uh, a broadway musical um, I'm pretty excited about doing that. Uh, I don't know what to expect out of it. I don't certainly don't have a, a you know high hopes for for most um, most movies being adapted into Broadway. 
productions, right? But, right. you know, which feels like it might work. Yeah. For, for more information on that, dear listeners, you should listen to Friend of the Pod, uh, Ben Kay's podcast, Movie the Musical, which I came on to talk about uh, Sweet Smell Success. And it, it just delves into movies that have been adapted into stage musicals. And unsurprisingly, not a great track record is, <laughs> is the conclusion of that, that podcast, but it's uh, definitely worth a listen. Fair. Yeah. Um, but yeah, no, it, it just, it, it, the, 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 uh, the great thing about Irma Vep is, is it, it takes that question of what do you do when you're remaking it? And then the ending of it tells you like, you have to explode it. Right. And so that's, you come at it and you're like, yeah, why are we getting these other remakes? Like even the Suspiria remake is at least is, is a step in that direction. But like, let's just like take that next leap forward everybody and like really get get exciting with this stuff instead of just regurgitating nostalgia anyway we not... are the the rails are long gone we have abandoned the rails they i are... got i got like <laughs> five hours of sleep last night i'm in crunch week at work i am uh not <laughs> yeah the rails have definitely come off internally so i'm, I'm not surprised to come off we thought our either. chinatown long goodbye episode was long you were not prepared for two films that one doesn't even have a Wikipedia entry. Yeah, so, let's let's wrap this one up. Um, all right, friends. Thanks, as always, for joining us on this excavation of the darkest, grittiest of genres. You can find us online at CelluloidDirt.com and on Letterboxd under the handle CelluloidDirt. We'll see you next time when, for once, we'll stop taking this thing so damn seriously and look at two classic send-ups of noir Dead Men Don't Wear Plaid, and Who Framed Roger Rabbit. Until then, may your viewings be riddled with scandal and desperation. Good night. Celluloid Dirt is a strange phantom production. Written and produced by Tristan Johnson and Fred Pelzer. Music by Kevin McLeod. His work can be found at incompetech.com. If you like the podcast, tell a friend. <laughs>